0: The prison camp in Elmira, New York, was called the Andersonville of the North, so notorious that it became known as Hellmira. But did it deserve that reputation? I'm Chris Makowski, and today we'll talk with historian Derek Maxfield, author of the new Emerging Civil War series book, Hellmira, the Union's Most Infamous Civil War Prison, Elmira, New York, today on the Emerging Civil War Podcast. Virginia has entered Phase 2 in its efforts to reopen the state from the pandemic lockdown. That means we are still on track for this summer's 7th annual Emerging Civil War Symposium at Stevenson Ridge, August 7th through the 9th. This year's theme will focus on fallen leaders. Keynote speaker Gordon Ray will talk about the loss of Jeb Stewart at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. Historian Greg Mertz will give us a tour of the ground where James Longstreet was wounded. We'll have ten other historians on the docket covering fallen leaders north and south. You can see a full list on the symposium page on our website, emergingcivilwar.com/symposium. Tickets are $175 for all three days, but seating is limited. The seventh annual Emerging Civil War Symposium at Stevenson Ridge on the Spotsylvania Courthouse Battlefield. August 7th through the 9th. We hope you'll join us. Welcome to a special edition of the Emerging Civil War podcast. I'm Chris Makowski. Does the prison camp in Elmira, New York, deserve its reputation as Helmira? I recently had the opportunity to talk with Derek Maxfield, author of a new Emerging Civil War series book on the Elmira prison. The video portion of that interview is available on the Emerging Civil War YouTube page. What follows in this episode of the Emerging Civil War podcast is the audio portion of that interview. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me from upstate New York today is my Emerging Civil War colleague, Derek Maxfield. Derek, hello.
1: Hey, Chris, how are you?
0: i'm doing well uh, are you enjoying your summer break
1: well I, I haven't had much of a summer break yet but i am enjoying it thank you uh,
0: unfortunately you're kind of getting a break from your road tour aren't you you do a, a two-man show with tracy ford that talks about grant and sherman and uh, unfortunately the lockdown has kind of had you locked out
1: hasn't it? it's really sad you're right we had this great performance in north carolina in early march just before the lockdown and we had uh, 600 people and a great standing ovation at the end. And we were at, kind of at the high point of uh, that traveling show. And then everything got locked down. We canceled at least six shows. Oh, wow. That is a bummer. It is.
0: And, and particularly with the interest in Ulysses S. Grant riding pretty high from
1: the, yeah. uh, the film miniseries. So. Uh, which I have not seen yet.
0: I haven't I haven't had the chance to watch it yet either. So uh, that, that makes two of us. So but uh, I've invited Derek to join us today from his easy chair, which looks very comfortable, by the way, um, to talk a little bit about his new book in the Emerging Civil War series. Uh, he's written a fantastic little book about the prison camp in Elmira, New York, commonly referred to as Helmira. Um Derek, let me just ask you, first of all, why you were interested in writing about Elmira.
1: Mm-hmm it's very close to where I grew up, first of all. Uh, Elmira is only about 30 miles from uh, Dundee, uh, where I grew up. And so I was in Elmira all the time. And uh, if I remember the way that this worked, uh, I wrote a couple posts uh, for the blog about Elmira. And, and then you suggested I write the book. Uh, and i fell into my lap that way.
0: I guess a, a pretty good way to have something fall in your lap, I suppose. It was wonderful. Yeah. Now you you said you grew up not far from there, Dundee, but you didn't necessarily have a, a connection to the prison camp story, though. Um, no. How, how much was Elmira on your radar screen at that time?
1: Well, you know, the Civil War was always kind of an interest. I remember from middle school growing up, and so I had an awareness, but I had this notion that there were no Civil War sites anywhere near me. You know. Um, Battlefield, of course, the nearest battlefield of Gettysburg, of course. Um, and then, you know, despite the fact that I was pretty well versed in local history, um, Elmira itself had kind of erased its Civil War history. And so even people living there had no notion about the camp. Um, really, it was a concerted effort in part to erase that history because they didn't want to be associated. Um, with being the Andersonville of the North, which was a label that kind of emerged um, during the late 19th century. Uh, Whenever the the North wanted to harp on the atrocities at Andersonville, the South would answer, well, what about Elmira? Elmira was just as bad, if not worse. And so, um, you know, right after the war, there had been a contract with the Foster family to return the land where the prison camp set Uh, to its original uh, farmland use. So that's one reason it was returned. Uh, But another, you know, uh, another thing that happened is they just didn't want to remember the camp there because they didn't want that association. And then they kind of erased the association with the camp. And so, you know, even locals didn't know it was there.
0: Like Helmira is not a very inviting sounding tourist destination. Oh, let's go to Elmira,
1: right? No, no, it's certainly not. And, you know, another thing that was happening shortly after the war is a lot of the prisoners were writing memoirs. It was kind of the thing to do if you served or you, you were incarcerated uh, was to write your memoir of your incarceration and uh, you know, at least half a dozen of the inmates of Elmira wrote memoirs, so most of them quite scathing.
0: Now, the other thing I think Elmira had going for it is it's Mark Twain country. A lot of people don't realize Mark Twain's wife was actually from Elmira. So they summered there year after year after year. He wrote some of his greatest novels while he was there at his wife's family's farm. And so Elmira really kind of tacked on to that as a, uh, a tourist's hook, if you will, and, and let the Civil War history slide by. It uh, did. So, so Mark Twain overshadowed the, the prison camp story. What brought the prison story back, do you know?
1: Well, I think a number of things began to happen. In the late 90s, they erected a monument uh, on Waterworks property down near the river. And so that began the process of kind of opening eyes to what had been there. And I remember reading accounts of when they put that monument there and neighbors commented that they had no idea that their property that they owned was once the site of a Civil War prison camp. Um, So that began the process. And then during the Centennial period, a group of uh, interested citizens created the Friends of the Elmira Prison, um, and their effort was to try to revitalize that history tell the story again to educate people about what once happened there. Uh, And they began the process of actually uh, erecting an original building from original lumber, um, which had long been rumored to be in somebody's barn. So they put that up and more recently they put up a reconstructed barracks from schematics found in the war department uh, on that property. And so that's another thing that, that began generating interest There are a couple books. um, You know, they're quite old now. Uh, You know, uh, Michael Gray is probably the most notable, uh, The Business of Captivity. And uh, that's 20 years old now. Michael Horrigan wrote a book, uh, again, about that same period. So it's been kind of a while uh, since those happened. Uh, But it's been a slow build.
0: Look, we, we just happen to have a new one right here. Uh, my vir- my virtual background is fading away in, in spots there, but this is a picture of uh, Derek's book. Let me see if I can get it to show up a little bit, because I want to ask you about the picture that's on the front here with this, oh. these tents and tents. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. show yours up, because yours yours works a little better on the camera there. There we go. Tell me about that picture that's on the cover and all of those tents, because that looks like, you know, if we're going to compare Elmira to Andersonville, this looks a lot more comfortable than the dirt stockade that the folks in Andersonville were in.
1: Right. Well, you know, the, the tent story is, is really about, um, a a prison camp that was erected hastily and with really without regard for a long-term use, you know, when Elmira was formed, it's, you know, in the middle of 1864, the Overland campaign is packing union prison camps just full to overflowing, the biggest of those was in Maryland at Point Lookout, and that was busting at the seams. And they needed something else. But the, the thought was that this war is gonna end really soon, we don't need it for long. And so when they chose Elmira, uh, they chose it because it was on a major uh, transportation route, it was north, up away from the fight, well behind the lines. Um, and you know it was already had some infrastructure so that's why they chose Elmira and they began in the middle of uh, 64 to move people there. But again, it was thought that, you know, in July of 64, we're not gonna need this long term. This war is gonna be over. And you know, there was little thought about building barracks at first because they thought that you know the, the weather in the middle of 64, the summer is pretty nice. Um, you know barracks are a winter thing more or less and they didn't immediately begin uh, building barracks in fact they didn't even begin building a hospital immediately Um, and so they housed them in tents And, and sadly what happened was their poor planning meant that it was January of 65 before the final prisoners were inside of barracks even in December you still had hundreds of men uh, prisoners lodged in these little tents on the bare ground, with you know a little more than straw.
0: And it was a particularly harsh winter that winter too.
1: It I was. was we know that there was snow on the ground in October. Well, you know that's nothing new for uh, upstate New York. Uh, but it was it was quite cold that winter.
0: And the camps also built on a floodplain.
1: Oh, uh, it's just a terrible place for them to place a prison camp. You know they know. That that river, the Shemung River, floods every spring. You know, and the harshness of the winter means, you know, uh, the more snow on the ground, the more the spring thaw is going to deliver water down through that valley, right? And uh, the commandant of of the post at that time, Benjamin Tracy, was told well in advance, "We need to plan for this," and he didn't. And the result was on uh, it was Saint Patrick's Day in March of 65, that the camp was inundated. Uh, More than 80% of the camp was underwater. And in fact, the smallpox hospital, which was down closest to the river, uh, had to have an emergency evacuation in the middle of the night with this jury rigged raft system where you had guards and prisoners working together to try to save the smallpox patients.
0: Now, of course, they don't know it at the time, but St. Patrick's Day of 65, the war, it's in its closing days, um, certainly winding down. And yet here you have, have men living in absolute misery in the, the, the resource-rich industrial north. Yep. Um, and a lot of people have problems with, with trying to uh, reconcile that. Um, why was that allowed to happen?
1: Well, it's, it's really a complicated thing. Let's start with the charge that this was a concerted effort by union authorities of uh, retribution. That's one argument Michael Horrigan and, and uh, Michael Gray have made that um, it was, you know, starting way at the top at the uh, Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, uh, just appalled at the conditions at places like Belle Isle and the Richmond. Facilities, and then Andersonville, and uh, decided upon retribution, not just in Elmira but other Union prison camps. And we do know that there is a, a paper trail that suggests that rations were cut in all prison camps at least three times between the middle of '64 and '65. And so, yeah, in Elmira, they're living among plenty, especially vegetables. Uh, so, there's no reason that the men should have suffered uh, for lack of food. Uh, there, there is some evidence that suggests that uh, the contractors that were supposed to deliver meat, uh, the, uh, the cow farmers, you know, and the, the contractors, there was corruption involved there that, that did delay and, and produce some bad beef that created some supply problems. But really, the larger story is: Union authorities had it in their power to feed their prisoners better, and they didn't.
0: And contrast that against uh, Confederate prison camps, where the Confederacy itself was, you know, depleted of a lot of rations and supplies, poor, you know, transportation infrastructure. So in some cases, uh, in southern prisons. They just didn't have the capacity to feed the prisoners. Where in the North, I think the capacity still
1: existed. Right. Um, the capacity was there. And, you know, one of the things about Andersonville, which is the natural comparison to make, uh, is that they placed it so far south and they, they placed it so far away from a rail hub um, in the thought that they would put it so far behind the lines that, you know, Union wouldn't be able to get to it to bring about some kind of rescue. That they themselves were unable to feed even their guards, much, much less the prisoners in their care.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about that Elmira Andersonville comparison, because you you kind of crunched some numbers in the book and, and suggest that maybe it's not necessarily a fair comparison to make.
1: Well, I don't think it's a fair comparison to make, but I, I just want to remind people that, that I, I don't want to go about finger pointing. Here And in the book, my argument is that it's what we're well past the time when we should be doing that. You know, it is a great humanitarian crisis that really has been overlooked in the Civil War literature for a long, long time. People know about it, but they don't know the details of how horrific prison camps in general, North and South, really were. And that both sides could have done much better to take care of the prisoners in their care. So that's kind of where I want to start you know, the the natural comparison and the reason why people make a parallel between Elmira and Andersonville is really the percentage of casualties of the camps. So it was near 30% at Andersonville. 30% of the prisoners that went into the camp never came out again. And that does not count the men that will die in, you know, within a year or so after their release because they were so malnourished or diseased right? So those numbers don't count that. Um, It was 25% in Elmira. And that was the highest casualty rate of any Union prisoner of war camp. Um, But when you look at the, the infrastructure that was at Andersonville, there were no shelters provided at Andersonville. These men are out there in 90, 95 degree weather with no shelter. They make shebangs out of whatever materials that they can find uh, to try to provide some shelter. They, they dug into the earth uh, to try to provide some shelter. Uh, in Elmira, there was f- wells with fresh water available. In Andersonville, the only water that was available to prisoners was the sludgy little stream that ran through the middle of the camp that was diseased very, very quickly. Um, I think that you know the conditions the climate, the what is provided for the welfare of the prisoners is a much different story when you compare those two. Now that said, though, you know when you play, there are overlooked stories. I think in the prison camp uh, 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 history, look at Salisbury, for example. I think the conditions at, at Salisbury, which was one of the Confederate prisoner of war camps may have been as bad as Andersonville, if not worse. And we really don't have a good record of the casualties and the deaths there at all.
0: Well, I think the other sort of misleading thing about the, the comparison between Andersonville and Elmira is just the sheer number of people who are in the, uh, the prison population. Um, Elmira was a much smaller prison camp compared to, Elmira, to uh, Andersonville as well, correct?
1: Right, well, Andersonville reached almost 40,000 at one point, if I remember correctly. Uh, it was designed only to hold 10, and they had to even expand it at one point, and they even packed that after the expansion. Uh, Elmira reached 10,000 at its height, and it now it wasn't designed to hold that many, um, but that's, that's what they got in ultimately. Now you
0: mentioned the the sort of polluted source of fresh water as the stream that ran through Andersonville. Uh, it's a sort of a little low swale between the two halves of the camp there. Um, Elmira also had internal fresh water with Foster's Pond. Tell me a little bit about how successful or not Foster's Pond was.
1: Well, Foster's Pond was a farm pond, and and uh, the the site of where the camp would sit was you know a piece of farm property, essentially near the river on a floodplain. Pl- flood and um, when they first um, erected the camp, it was very early on when authorities there began to worry about the healthiness of this little pond because it was kind of stagnant. It, it did not have um, a, f- a fresh flow of water through it. And then when they began to bring in prisoners and the camp grew very quickly, you know, it was went from dozens to hundreds very quickly. Um, and at first, the latrines were not well-sighted there. And so what happened was a lot of urine and, and, and other matter began to make its way into the pond. The pond began to smell really bad. It got this ugly film over the top. And, um, you know, it really began to be controversial. Uh, the first Chief Surgeon, a man by the name of Eugene Sanger, arrived there pretty early on and It was one of the earliest recommendations he made to run a sluice of fresh water through that pond, otherwise, um, what they were would talk about as miasma in those days, the odor emanating from the pond would make the men sick uh, this would cause disease this was caught was would cause death. Now we know today medically that's not sound, but at the time that was the medical science available to them and they they believed that that uh, would be bad. It wasn't that the men were drinking the water because there were fresh wells from the very beginning. Four wells were used to provide fresh water. And there was some allegation that those wells could have been uh, contaminated. But for, from what I have read, um, the wells were well-sighted and, and, and clear, not polluted by urine or feces. Uh, but it was the miasma issue. It was the odor emanating from the pond that they thought would make men sick. So if that's what they believed, they should have done something about that very quickly, and they did not. And, and part of the story is that William Hoffman, who was the, uh, the head of the union prison system Um, didn't want to spend money. He was very much a tightwad and um, he wanted to keep the war department happy by keeping costs down and he didn't want to pay uh, to have fresh water run through that pond. Uh, He also believed that the camp wasn't going to be there for very long either. And so why go through the trouble and expense of doing that?
0: You talk about Hoffman as being a singularly poor choice for that job. Um, Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, you know, this guy's really um, kind of a nobody. He was briefly incarcerated in uh, Texas early on in the war. So he was a POW himself for a short amount of time before being exchanged. You know, I believe he was a second lieutenant at that time. And he really didn't have any administration experience at all. Um, he, He certainly didn't have any prison camp experience at all. He just was kind of available once he was exchanged, and they needed somebody. He happened to be in Washington at the time, and uh, they just kind of tapped him. And in my opinion, that if they were so concerned, or if they wanted to show concern for, um, you know, doing well by prisoners of war, they should have chosen somebody more well-suited for the job. Now, as it turns out, he did okay, um, you know, within his ability, but hampered by the War Department One, who who really didn't show any regard for prisoners of war at all. I mean, even at one point, they put Ben Butler in charge of prisoner exchange. That shows you, uh, you know, their regard for prisoners and, and prison exchanges. If you put Ben Butler in charge of anything, in my opinion. Um, how, do
0: you, how do you really feel there about Ben Butler,
1: Derek? <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, I don't have a high opinion of him, uh, but I I do have a higher opinion of of William Hoffman. Uh, But he was also a tightwad, as I said, you know, and he really wanted to do uh, the penny pinching that the war, keep the war department happy, which seemed to be in his nature. But it also meant that the penny pinching, um, you know, would come down to real suffering among prisoners.
0: Now, you you talk about the, the problems the camp has on the camp level with leadership as well. um, Where, you know, some guys are really looking out for the prisoners, other guys are not. And that becomes sort of an ongoing source of problems as well.
1: It's true, but there's also really an interesting human uh, story in there too. So um, the commandants of the post were Seth Eastman first and then Benjamin Tracy. But the commandant of the prison camp until December of 64, or it was January maybe of 65, was a man named Henry Colt. Now, Henry Colt was um, an officer, he was a major, that had served in the Army of the Potomac. He had been injured in battle and kind of put on the injured reserve. And, um, but, you know, much like the, the creation of the Veterans Reserve Corps, Um, You know, he wanted to serve, he didn't want to go home and recuperate, and they put him in charge of the Elmira prison camp uh, while he recuperated. And here's a guy that, despite all the vitriol coming out of prisoners in the days after the war, and they they talked about the harshness of their treatment in their memoirs, many of them mention how much they admired and even loved Henry Colt the very man that was in charge of the place where they were incarcerated, especially Anthony Kiley. Now Anthony Kiley is kind of a special case of prisoner in Elmira. He, um, was actually a Virginia legislator that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had served in Lee's army early earlier, but by that time he was a Virginia legislator and he went to join the Richmond militia one day, he got swept up, uh, by Union Cavalry, ended up first at, at Point Lookout and then was sent to Elmira. Now, Elmira was normally a place where you had your foot soldiers, average foot soldiers incarcerated, not officers. But Anthony Kiley ended up in Elmira and, and, and ended up in this friendship with Henry Colt, so much so that Colt gave Kiley special quarters, gave Kiley a job working in the camp, Um, very special treatment, and even arranged Kylie's early release in late October. Um, And so um, Kylie wrote very nicely uh, about Colt. And as a matter of fact, Colt and uh, Kylie even went into business together after the war for a short time. That's how close that friendship became. And so while Kylie had these terrible things to say about the conditions there, he had nothing but praise uh, for Colt. And, um other prisoners wrote pretty much the same
0: too. your book has a lot of great human interest stories about it, which I really like. It's not just a, an administrative history of the camp, but it really talks about the prisoner experience and and some great human interest stories. Um, Thomas Button's Bots, uh, you start the book with, uh, Barry Benson, who has a, you know, one of the few people to escape from there. Um, but John Jones, to me, is just a fascinating character that I think uh, deserves particular mention here in the interview. Can you tell us a little bit about him?
1: I think the John's Jones, John Jones story is, is really quite touching. So, uh, so this man was the caretaker of the Woodlawn cemetery. And then what became the Woodlawn national cemetery where Confederate soldiers are going to be buried. He himself had been a slave. He was born into slavery and then, um, ran away. He was concerned as, uh, his, uh, mistress was getting older his owner was getting older a widow woman that what would happen after she died and he decided that he wasn't going to wait for that to happen he was pretty well treated but he decided to escape and he made his way north and he ends up in Elmira thinking he was only passing through on his way to Canada but he ends up staying in Elmira and he becomes an important conductor on the Underground Railroad ushering over 300 slaves through Elmira, ultimately, to freedom. Um, And he stays there, and he becomes an important part of the Elmira community, well-respected. He becomes sexton of the Baptist Church within a short time of his arrival. Uh, He becomes the caretaker of that cemetery. Uh, Later, he becomes the caretaker, as I said, of Woodlawn Cemetery. Um, And so he's this well-respected, runaway African-American man. And what was then, Elmira was a pretty liberal community, not, not, not so much today, but it was at that time, very progressive. Um, and so he found a place where he was comfortable. Um, and uh, when the prison camp opened, um, the government leased land to have a place to um, bury uh, Confederate soldiers who die incarcerated. And Jones really took to this um, notion and took special care to identify and to bury very carefully and respectfully uh, these Confederate soldiers. And in the background behind you uh, is a very nice uh, picture of what it looks like today at the Woodlawn National Cemetery, including all the way in the back, there is uh, a nice monument to those men. Uh, The care was so well done that only a few of those Confederate prisoners had, have been moved since the war. Just a handful many families came to Elmira with the intent of removing the bodies of their loved ones only to find them so well cared for in such a beautiful little cemetery that they decided to leave them there. And that's a testament to John Jones. Today, there's a beautiful little cottage that used to belong to John Jones that's turned into a museum.
0: I was actually going to mention, that's right across the street from Woodlawn uh, yes. National
1: Cemetery as well. So
0: there you can see the cemetery behind me. Uh, let me see which shoulder I've got here. Okay. This one. <laughs> there's the Confederate monument. Uh, this is hard doing this in mirror. That's the Confederate monument right there. Um, and there's a little memorial to John Jones in the cemetery as well. There's also a memorial in the cemetery to the victims of the Shahola train wreck. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Shahola train wreck was?
1: Well, the Shahola wreck uh, really is kind of a horrifying tale of, of incompetence or uh, mismanagement. So you had a trainload of prisoners, and this was very early in the camp's existence. I think like it was only the second or third shipment of prisoners coming north, came coming through the mountains of Pennsylvania, and uh, the prisoner train collided head-on with a coal train uh, largely because of the neglect of an operator there. And uh, the result was just horrifying. Bodies just spilled everywhere. And uh, the whole community down there came together to try to, uh, you know, care for the wounded and 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 bury the bodies of the dead. And it was just really quite ugly. Um, and Anthony Kiley tells us in his own memoirs, inviculus that um you know they had no notion that the wounded from this accident were coming at all they came in the middle of the night and they were marched out of the camp to help care for their wounded men and he describes what a horrifying sight it was to find you know these wounded and mangled but still living uh confederate prisoners um, arriving there having had almost no medical care Put on the train for three hours, only to arrive in Elmira in the middle of the night. Um, it was a re- really a ghastly story. That was actually
0: my introduction to Elmira. They used that story in the old uh, TV miniseries, The Blue and the Gray. And wrote this,
1: about that in your forward, yes.
0: The Stacy Keach comes in, and he's all dash and and so that's how I found out that there was a prison camp. And when I went to Elmira to investigate, um, there were just a, a few markers in one neighborhood that marked corners of where the post had once been, the uh, the uh, stockade wall had once been. Uh, there was an exhibit at the Chemung Valley uh, Historical Society, a great little museum there in Elmira. And that was it. And uh, so it's kind of neat to see Elmira's Civil War history coming back to life these days.
1: It is. It, it really is wonderful. The The Jones Museum is a nice addition, and everything that the Friends of the Elmira prison have done to bring this history back is just amazing.
0: And I'll point out, I know that the, the Friends group makes an effort to not call it Helmyra, because they're trying to take a very even-handed, um, non-confrontational, um, um, non-exaggerated approach to things. Uh, but of course, in popular memory, everyone has, has called it Helmyra. Uh, there does seem to be some controversy as to when that name first came up, and it wasn't a, contemporary, a contemporaneous uh, moniker or not.
1: Well, I, I don't really know the origins of it. I think Horrigan mentions it in his book briefly. He uses the term. Um, and, you know, the, the, um, if I remember the the first book that came out, Clay Holmes came out with a book near World War One, And I think that was the first account of the Elmira prison camp, the history of the camp. And I think he mentions that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, As people go out and and check out your book, Derek, uh, what one main takeaway do you hope that that people get from it?
1: Well, you know, in in an effort to just provide an introductory story to this, you know, I'm not trying aiming at a comprehensive account. I just want to bring this, you know, into people's um, consciousness. I want that human element to stick with them. You know, this is a humanitarian disaster. You know, and I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but I do want people to give more thought to not just Elmira, but you know, um, prison c- camps and and even the nature of incarceration today. What is it we hope to accomplish? And um, you know, how what kind of a responsibility do we have to people that we take prisoner, either in war or we take them prisoner because they've committed a crime? Um, do we have any responsibility? responsibility to these people, or is it just one continuing and compounding uh, punishment?
0: So those are some pretty poignant questions uh, with some pretty um, relevant uh, context for us today, I think. I think so. I got to ask you too uh, before I forget. And and seeing these rows and rows of graves behind me here, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the poor conditions at the camp, um, people showing up who have injuries or are wounded, um, malnourishment, and you briefly mentioned smallpox. So these are all, you know, contributions to to this this toll of bodies that we see behind me here. Um, What kind of takeaway can we I guess, you know, what sort of lesson can we take away from thinking about all those causes of death uh, about people who are in our charge?
1: Well, I, I would hope that, that, that we give more thought to our own responsibilities, right? What is the point of incarceration in the first place, either in war or in peacetime? And uh, what kind of a society that do we want to build from that? You know, I've never been a fan of building more prisons. I'm a big fan of rehabilitation where it's possible. And when we're talking about prisoners of war, these are men, a lot of these men that end up in Elmira were foot soldiers fighting for the Confederacy. Most of them are not slave owners. Almost none of them are slave owners. And they are caught up in the struggle for their independence. And um, so when we take them prisoner, are we punishing them for that act? Are we punishing them because they're on the wrong side? They believe in the wrong thing. And as we hold them, um, what is the end goal? As we hold them, uh, do we have any regard for releasing them someday? And when we do release them someday, what kind of citizens do we hope that they will be? And in the case of the Civil War, Grant and others hoped to put the country back together as quickly and painlessly as possible. That was certainly Lincoln's vision. Well, it seems very counterproductive to me, then, to mistreat the prisoners of war in your charge. So some
0: uh, heavy, but I think uh, fantastic questions that you're posing there. So uh, the book is Helmira, the Union's Most Infamous Civil War Prison Camp. Elmira, New York by Derek Maxfield. Uh, Hot off the press, it's our most recent emerging Civil War series book. And uh, Derek, uh, next plans for anything else in the hopper now that uh, this book's behind you?
1: Well, I do have uh, a book in the works on Sherman and his friendship with Grant. It's partly as a result of the play that you mentioned earlier, that that this is uh, on my radar. Um, So that's something I would like to do, uh, something I'm currently working on and uh you know you asked about an andersonville book and i might get to that but uh, i want to get the sherman book done first
0: very good well derek thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us today uh, i'm chris makowski for murdering civil war on behalf of my colleague derek maxfield thanks for joining us so much today we will see you online and on the battlefield and a few production notes here on the podcast engineering is courtesy of our engineer jackson Mikowski. thank you jackson The theme music comes from the 2nd South Carolina String Band. You can find their music at www.civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. There are 30 of us historians offering free content, trying to spread the gospel of what we think is America's defining event. And we'd love to have you as part of that conversation about the Civil War. Join us online at www.EmergingCivilWar.com. I'm Chris Makowski on behalf of Derek Maxfield and all of us at Emerging Civil War. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield.